We want to now consider God's Word to us from Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2, under the heading of the coming glory of the temple. The coming glory of the temple. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's Word. In the seventh month of the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these things, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. So with every work of their hands and what they offer is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you with all the products of your toil, with blight and mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time, on the 24th day of the month, speak to Zerubbabel governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horse and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant. The son of Shelatile declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. May we receive it with a believing heart. Dear congregation, in Haggai's first prophecy, the Jews were told that they needed to reorder their priorities. 
They were more interested, verse 4, in their own paneled houses. They were more interested, verse 9, in the harvest that they could receive from the land than they were interested in the temple of God and the presence of God in their midst. And the prophet Haggai calls them to reorder their priorities. To work in service of the Lord. And we see in chapter 1, uh, verses 14-15, to the people respond with vigor. They respond with excitement. They begin to work in the temple of God. But in chapter 2, 49 days after they began the work, they're starting to grow weary. They're starting to get tired of the work. Tired of serving the Lord with little to show for it. I want to ask you this question this morning. Have you ever had the experience of working hard at something and not seeing any results? It can be one of the most discouraging things working at a friendship and never having your calls returned. Or children who don't heed your advice. Or a spouse who doesn't respond to your love. Or maybe even a ministry or a church that you pour your heart and soul in with no fruit. It can be so discouraging. And what compounds the discouragement is when we see other people's relationships working. Other people thriving. Or we think back to more better and prosperous times. Are you tired this morning? Tired of the kids that God has called you to raise? Tired of denying the flesh? Tired with the work God has called you to do? Tired with serving the church? Well, God has a word for you through the prophet Haggai. We likewise are called to continue in the work. But not to work by might, but to continue by faith. Trusting that God can supply for all that we need. That's the theme of our time together this morning. Continue in the work of building the temple by faith in God's promises. And God gives us three promises. The promise of glory the promise of blessing, and the promise of a future kingdom. Promise of glory, verses 1-9. through Promise of blessing, 10-19. through And the promise of a future kingdom in verses 20-23. through Notice first with me those, for that second prophecy of Haggai in verses 1-9. through After 49 days, the people were already beginning to fall prey to the sin of comparison. Often we don't think of comparison as a sin. And sometimes you can actually hear people justify themselves by saying, hey, I was only comparing. I'm sure you've heard that before. But comparing that leads to covetousness, comparison that leads to jealousy is sinful. And that's what was taking place here. At the beginning of chapter 2, Haggai dates 
this sermon again. We see in verse 1, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. And this date is significant because it would have been around October 17th, we estimate, 520 B.C., which would have been during the last and the greatest feast in the Old Testament calendar. The Feast of Tabernacles. But the Feast of Tabernacles was commemorated by the Jews not only for God's leading them out of Exodus, but a great historic event took place on the Feast of Tabernacles. 1 Kings 8 tells us Solomon dedicated the first temple during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now when I think of Bible stories that I would have liked to have witnessed with my very own eyes, the dedication of Solomon's temple might be near the top of that list. 1 Kings 8 says, no expense was spared in the dedication of the temple. 1 Kings 8.5 says, an innumerable, uncountable number of sheep and oxen were slaughtered at the dedication of Solomon's temple. The king was there in all of his splendor. The priests were there. But most importantly, in verse 11 of 1 Kings 8, God's glory descended from the heaven and filled that first temple. So much so, the priests could not even go into the temple. God manifested His glory in a very real way. Imagine seeing a building of that size. It's gold gleaming in the Middle Eastern sun. The huge courts where the praises of God were sung. The Holy of Holies in the center with the Ark of the Covenant in the middle of it. It would have been an incredible sight, but what made it even more incredible was God's glory. But Solomon's temple at the time of Haggai's prophecy, the seventh month of the 21st day, had only fallen, had only been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar some 80 years ago or so. And there were still some older folks who remembered that first temple. In fact, the King James Version says in verse 3 of Haggai chapter 2 that they were comparing this new temple to the first. Now, after 49 days, what do you think could actually be accomplished in rebuilding the temple? Probably not much. Maybe they only had the scaffolding up. Hardly even began. But verse 3 of our ESV Bible says they saw this attempt at building this new temple as nothing. In the Hebrew, that word nothing isn't even a word. It's just a grammatical feature which negates itself. Meaning, they didn't see this attempt to rebuild the temple as anything worth commemorating. It's as if it didn't even exist in these people's minds. In fact, if you have a Bible, Ezra chapter 3, verse 12 gives us the context of this. 
It says, but many of the older priests, the Levites and the family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. When they saw this new temple, they didn't see God's glory. They saw this new symbol of God's presence with His people. They didn't think Emmanuel. God with us. Instead, their response was Ichabod. There is no glory here. There is no glory here. You see, they're comparing of the new temple to the outward glory of the old temple led them to a lack of faith. That's what I think this is. It's a lack of of faith. And we see it's doing damage to the morale of other people who are present as these folks are weeping. Verse 4 implies they're losing strength. They're running out of gas, if you will. God says three times, be strong, be strong, be strong. Verse 5 implies that they were fearful. And it's an important question to ask. What are they fearful of? We just sang Psalm 127. And didn't it just say, if the Lord is with you, His people need not fear. What are they fearful of? Two weeks ago when we looked at Haggai chapter 1, we noted that Darius had given the Jews his blessing to rebuild the temple. He had given them his protection. There was no enemies that they needed to be fearful of. Was it a lack of finances? No. King Darius also said that the surrounding nations were to support the Jews financially in their rebuilding of the temple. So there's no fear of adversaries. There's no fear of lack of finances. What are they afraid of? John Calvin says, and I think he's right, that the weeping of the elderly cast doubt upon whether God had really commissioned the building of the temple. They we're beginning to doubt if God was the one who had asked them to do this. You see, if you read Ezekiel and you read Jeremiah, it is very clear that the second temple will exceed the first temple in glory. It'll be more glorious, more majestic, more beautiful But as they are looking at this scaffolding, this feeble attempt to rebuild the temple, they are feeling less and less assured that this second temple will be more glorious than Solomon's. In congregation, outwardly, this is true. There's no way a ragtag bunch of exiles can make a temple that is outwardly as beautiful as Solomon's, who was one of the richest men who ever lived. 
But aren't they missing the mark here? We know that there are many beautiful buildings in this world, especially beautiful religious buildings in this world. But what was it that made the temple so beautiful? It was not the gold. It wasn't the bricks. What made the temple beautiful, what made Jerusalem Zion, was that God dwelt in her midst. And what does God do to assure Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the high priest, and the people? What does He say in verse 4? Be strong, be strong, be strong, for I am with you. The beauty is still here. The glory is still here, even though it doesn't appeal to your senses. Even though you can't see it with your eyes or touch it with your hands. The glory is here because I am with you. And the second temple would be more glorious than the first. But the Lord says in verses 6-8, through it won't be more glorious because there will be more gold and silver. These these things already belong to the Lord. God says in that last day, verse 6, 7, and 8, that He will shake the nations so that all the gold and all the treasure and all the precious things will come into the kingdom of God. All of these things already belong to the Lord. What makes the temple more glorious is the greater glory. Something greater than gold, greater than silver greater than treasures. He says, the glory, verse 9, of this present house will be greater than the house of the former, and in this place I will grant peace. The greater glory is not beauty, but shalom. Remember that Peace was the reason the tabernacle in the Exodus wilderness and the temple even exists right now. People needed peace with God because they were sinners. They needed the shedding of blood. Without without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. If they wanted to dwell in the presence of holy God, they needed their sins to be atoned for. That's why the tabernacle existed. But God says there's going to be a greater peace than the animal sacrifices. There will be a greater peace than the priesthood who has to slaughter animals day and night. There will be a greater peace than innumerable sheep and oxen being offered. The greater peace, as the Apostle Paul says, that surpasses all understanding. A peace through the One whom the temple points to. John says in John chapter 1, When the Word became flesh, He dwelt. And in Greek, that word dwelt is tabernacled. The greater peace is the one who tabernacles among us. In John chapter 2, Jesus says, I will tear it. If you tear this temple down, it will be raised up in three days. And nobody knew what what He was speaking of. Then John says, He spoke of the temple of His body. 
peace, a greater peace through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose body would be torn down, and upon that cross, the veil would be torn in two, the barrier between God and His people removed. He brings peace. Peace that restores the relationship between God and man. A peace that restores relationship between man and his fellow man, man and creation. Shalom. Peace in the Lord Jesus Christ to come. Don't focus, O oh Jewish people of old, on the outward glory of the temple. Focus on what it points your eyes to in the Messiah to come. Oh, there's a word of application here, isn't there? To my dear friends who may have less hairs than they once did. Or more gray than they did before. Never be so enthralled with the work of the past that you discourage the labors of the present. This can become a danger. We think back to ministers of old, churches of old, the old days, the good days, where we're actually forgetting that there were trials then as well. And we meditate on them so much that we forget to encourage the younger men and women in their labors today. Beware of an infatuation with the good old days. And congregation, don't we need to also be aware, for all of us here, to be aware of religious vanity. Where we judge the success of the kingdom of God based on an outward beauty. Now, if you look around this church here, we don't have any gold. But we still have a temptation to think that maybe the glory has left us Maybe because our pews are not as full as they once were. The temptation to think the glory has left us because money is tighter or whatever it might be. But the glory of God, the apostle, or excuse me, the prophet Haggai says, is not dependent upon outward success. The kingdom of God is not dependent upon the outward beauty of the congregation. The kingdom of God is dependent on whether God is here in our midst. And whether it was four people meeting in a shack with mud floors or meeting in the most glorious temple on earth, if God is in the midst of her, it is heaven on earth. It is heaven on earth. Well, we move on now to the promise of blessing. This is Haggai's third sermon towards the people. Now, something new happens between verse 9 and verse 10, which would have been a time span of roughly 30 days. If you flip one page over to Zechariah's prophecy, uh, the next book of the Bible, we see these words, Zechariah 1, verse 1. In the eighth month, in the second year, listen to this, of Darius. What we're seeing here Verse 10, on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius. Shortly before this third sermon, a new prophet has arisen up. Another prophet named Zechariah. Now there are two prophets prophesying to the same people at the same time. And the prophet Haggai tells us that the people are working 
They're plodding along. They've heard his sermons about fixing the house of God, and so they're continuing on with the work. But Zechariah gives us the context of what was happening in verses 2 through 4. Say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, and I will return to you. Excuse me, go back to the top of verse 2. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Then down to the bottom there. Do not be like your fathers. So, if we just stayed in the book of Haggai, we would see the people working on the temple. They're plodding along. But Zechariah is telling us there's still a problem. Just because they're doing the work doesn't mean their heart is in the right place. They hadn't given up on the temple. They're outwardly serving the Lord, but their hearts are far from Him. And this is the real problem, congregation. They thought that they could get some blessing from God by having an association with holy things. That they could get some blessing from God by having an association with holy things. But righteousness is not contagious. Righteousness is not contagious. The prophet gives an analogy of this idea from the law. You know, when somebody would bring an offering to the temple, the priest would slaughter it, and some of the meat would be consecrated, set apart for the priest to eat. And the law said that a priest would take a piece of his garment and he would put the meat in his garment and that's how he would transport the meat around. It's probably not a suit jacket, but you get the idea. And he would would transport the meat in this way and then the garment, because it's touching that holy, consecrated meat, would itself become holy. But the prophet, prophet Haggai asks, well, what if somebody puts some other meat in there, puts some other stew once that holy meat is taken out. Does that meat become holy? What's the answer? No. Just because it's in contact with what was externally, outwardly around that holy thing doesn't mean it is holy. For example, if the priest carried some of that holy meat in his garment, the garment is holy because it comes in contact with that meat. But if he goes home and puts some chili in his pocket or some burgers in there, it's just meat in a blanket. The idea is this. You can only be holy by actually touching something holy. Not by just being around something holy. Righteousness is not contagious. We know that. Here's the problem though. Wickedness is. You know it is contagious. Sin. You know when someone was unclean in the Old Testament, it represented the contamination of sin. The prophet Haggai asks in verse 13, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the answer according to Numbers 19 verse 22 is yes. 
to be in contact with the dead would make someone ceremonially unclean and then you could pass on your uncleanness to others. A good illustration of this, parents know it well. When kids come into the house with dirty hands and they start touching the walls and the white couch and the bed sheets, it leaves a mark, doesn't it? The way a clean hand does not. The point is this, it's much easier to dirty something than it is to clean something. So the Lord says, verse 14, so it is with every work of their hands. What they offer is unclean. Self-centered religion, trying to get blessings by association with, was an inverted, with their inverted priorities, did not get them a blessing. All it did was further make them unclean. What we call this is ritualism. Even for some of us, we think that if we do the right things, we go to church, we're physically close to something holy, it will somehow wash away the uncleanness, the dirt, the sin. But this is what we call Pharisaism. A good works religion. You're trying to do something to get holy, to get clean, to get to heaven. But the Scriptures say there is no amount of good works that we can do to cleanse the stain of sin. Holiness comes not by mere contact with Christianity. Holiness comes by having union with Christ. And as you're united with Christ by faith, you receive His righteousness, you have that peace. Verse 9. It's through His blood that we're reconciled to God. It's through Him that we receive blessings from God. Not union with our pious and holy grandma. Not union with the church. Not sacraments or something else. We need Christ. This idea we talked about earlier this morning, salvation by grace, is seen actually in verses 15 through 19. You see, God did not bless their selfishness. In fact, God cursed their selfishness. He talks about blight and mildew. And if you flip to Deuteronomy 28, verse 22, where God says, I will curse you if you disobey me, he uses those exact words. They were not blessed. They were cursed for their unfaithfulness. Verse 17, yet they still did not turn to Me. So God says in verse 18, look into your heart from the 24th day of the ninth month. This would be in the midst of December. Right before winter. Verse 19, the seed yet in the barn Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. Nearly 20 years of living in Judah, they have still yet not gathered enough to have a storehouse of food. They always had to re-sow everything they harvested. 
This is the equivalent of living paycheck to paycheck. God had not blessed them with prosperity. But He says twice, consider your ways. Remember, we said this in Haggai 1. In the Hebrew, it means look into your heart. Verse 19 is quite jarring. And I will bless you. It's not a working for God that merits His blessing. It's not big offerings, but seeking the face of God that brings blessing. God does not bless them because they're moral people. God does not bless them because they are close to the temple. God blesses them because He is a gracious God. They never in a million years could have washed away the stain of sin. He alone has the power to cleanse us from our filth and make us gloriously clean. We need to move on to our third point, the promise of the kingdom. God will establish His kingdom despite how bad things might look. This principle we see all the way back with Caleb and Joshua. Let us go into the land. God is with us. He will establish His kingdom. Unfaithfulness looks at the outward appearance and says, we cannot win. And it seems that the Jews had a hard time of understanding it. That God's kingdom is not of this world. And in this final prophecy, God addresses Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, and he assures him of this. Don't look to the world. Look to the kingdom of God. Now Zerubbabel, aside from being an excellent boy's name for our expecting mothers who are here today, was a faithful leader of God's people. The Jews speak very highly of Zerubbabel even today. And he was no doubt concerned for the well-being of the Jews. And the nation, as it currently stood, would have seemed so weak and so frail. What is God saying in verse 21 and 22? Every nation that opposes Yahweh will be destroyed. You see those words shaking, overthrown, and it's not like the shaking that we see in chapter 2, verse 7. Instead, it's almost like it's describing a shattering. The defeat of all of God's enemies will be so severe that no evil person, no evil thing will remain. Take heart. Zerubbabel. There will be divine destruction of all your enemies. But the final verse of the whole book speaks not of divine destruction, but of divine deliverance. The feeble, tiny, weak nation of Israel on that day, meaning the last day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, My servant. Not governor any longer. He calls him his servant. 
The word servant in the Old Testament is often used to describe God's salvific purposes. David is often called my servant. Isaiah speaks of a suffering servant. Zerubbabel is a what we call a type. He's pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is seen even more clearly when he is called a signet ring. Young children, a signet ring would be a ring that a king would wear, which would have his insignia on it. And when he wrote a letter, he would put his symbol into the wax on that letter to, dis- to show that this letter really came from the king. It means sign. Zerubbabel, his servant, would be a sign. A sign of overcoming. A sign of deliverance. A sign of the strength of the kingdom of God. All hail, mighty Zerubbabel. Yet you may be shocked to find out. Zerubbabel never became the king of Judah. In fact, after the dedication of the temple in Ezra 6, we almost never hear about him again. He fades into the obscurity of history. Did God's promise fail? Well, the author of Hebrews says about this very verse, That God was not speaking of the kingdom of Zerubbabel, but was speaking of the kingdom of Christ. He was a faithful forerunner to Jesus Christ. He was not mighty. He was not glorious. He was not, he was almost the antithesis, the opposite of Solomon. He didn't have glorious buildings. He didn't have heaps of gold. But God's kingdom would be established through the faithfulness of His servant. Zerubbabel. The Lord Jesus Christ. That is how God overcomes. Don't look to the mighty. To the gold to the worldly success. Look to the promise of God. Dear congregation, don't we need this Word in our lives today? God's people likewise are encouraged to continue in the work of building the Kingdom of God of which the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 is not brick upon brick. It's not gold hanging from the walls like they did in Solomon's temple. We are called to build the kingdom of God in our midst. We are the kingdom of God. But may we not fall into the temptation of the Jews who looked to worldly success as the measure of the kingdom of God's might, as the measure of the kingdom of God's success or glory. May we look to the fulfillment of God's promise in Christ. When God's servant will come again, who will destroy all wickedness, and who will validate and raise up his kingdom with him to heaven.
where we will dwell with God Almighty and the Lamb, where there will be no temple, but God's people will dwell with God forever. This is what we look forward to. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Merciful Father, we do give You thanks for this Word. Thank You for this assurance, Lord, that You will overthrow all that is ungodly and not good. And that You will establish Your kingdom through Your your chosen servant, who though outwardly to our eyes is weak and frail, like this church is, Lord, but yet You have established us in glory. And You will establish Your church in glory. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that You would receive all of the glory, all of the acclaim, and all of the worship. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.